That song is uh, appropriately called simply the Servant Song. Uh, It was written in the late 1970s, but I became first acquainted with it in the early 1990s when I became Associate Pastor of Student Ministries at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, even as we were singing it just now, I could envision of the teens and the leaders singing that song uh, with guitar accompaniment. It had been a longtime favorite of the teens and leaders before I ever got there, and, and that remained the case during my few years there as youth pastor. Uh, whenever we sang that song together, there was a, a special closeness you could sense even in the room, because that song rightly expresses the essence of Christian community. It celebrates the way that church ought to be with brothers and sisters in Christ selflessly serving one another, faithfully walking beside one another through all the joys and the sorrows of life, and also being as Christ to one another. That really is the ultimate goal, to be as Christ in our relationship to one another. And that's really what 1 Timothy 5 is about. Uh, In the middle of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, uh, Paul says, My desire is to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that in case I am delayed, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church upholds the truth of God, not only by teaching God's word, but also by treating one another properly. Let me say that again. The church upholds the truth not only by teaching God's word faithfully, but also by treating one another properly. And that's what 1 Timothy 5 is about, the chapter we're going to be looking at the next couple of Sundays. Treat your faith family well. Treat your faith family well. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. And it's important to remember that amid all the instructions throughout 1 Timothy 5 that we'll be encountering today and next week, the main thing is to remember is that churches flourishes when their members treat one another like family. Churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. So let's go ahead And look at 1 Timothy 5. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2, we're called to love one another like family. And in verses 3 to 16, we're to look after those who have no family. That's how God wants his household to function. So let's pay attention to what the Holy Spirit says this morning. First of all, love one another like family. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 5. Where Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. There's a few things that simply by looking at the text we can notice right off the bat. First of all, we see that Paul categorizes the church congregation into four categories. Did you notice that? Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Though all believers are one in Christ, 
And we are told elsewhere in Scripture that we're to have the same care for one another. That doesn't mean that we're all exactly the same. There are different ages. There are two different genders in the church. We are all different in that sense, and therefore we must have a nuanced application of what it means to love one another properly, to have the same care for one another. The main way, or we could say the main verb that is given here in the opening verses is that we're to encourage one another. This main verb, this main command, this imperative in verses 1 and 2 covers all four categories. By implication, this command could be repeated four times. Look again at those verses. Encourage older men as fathers. Encourage older women as mothers. Encourage younger men as brothers. Encourage younger women as sisters. Encourage everyone, Timothy, regardless of their age or gender. That's the second thing to know. So the first thing to notice, there's four categories. The second thing to note is that the, the main command is to encourage one another, and that command applies across all four categories. The third thing to notice is that there are two qualifiers in this opening statement. Two qualifiers. One of them appears at the very beginning of verse 1, pertaining to older men, and the second one appears at the end of verse 2, pertaining to younger women. Timothy's relationship to younger women. Look first at verse 1. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Uh, Do not rebuke is the qualifier. Uh, The word rebuke there is an intensified form of the Greek verb to hit. (laughs) And so figuratively it means to hit someone or to strike someone with sharp insensitive, even brutal words. So it's a very uh, vicious remark, as you would, that by way of rebuke. Now the question is, why would Paul add this qualifier when it came to Timothy's relationships to older brothers, older Christians? Well, because there would be times when these older Christian brothers would be sinning, and Timothy would need to confront them. And if these brothers were causing problems in the church, if there was uh, false teaching going on or they were um, uh, uh, stirring up trouble within the church, Timothy would need to confront them. But Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, but be careful. You need to watch your words and you need to watch your tone lest you disrespect an older brother that God wants you to respect. Such behavior is is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. The Lord said in Levi uh, or in Leviticus 19, "You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord." Became very customary throughout ancient times and even now in modern times in many places, where when an older person enters the room, you rise out of respect. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So the implication is that to respect the elderly is to show reverence for God. To disrespect older people is to dishonor the Lord. That's the point of that verse. 
And uh, that verse came to mind long before I ever preached through this passage. About 20 years ago, when I was a young pastor, I often read the pastoral epistles, not preaching and teaching through them, just reading them for the sake of my own instruction, encouragement, and edification. And so I was fairly familiar with 1 Timothy, and uh, there was a time 20 years ago in my previous church where there was an older Christian brother uh, who was stirring up a lot of division in the church. He was creating a lot of trouble for me, for the elders, undermining our leadership, and, a one, and he was clearly sinning by doing that. And there was one time I just laid into him. Um, I gave him a very, very sharp rebuke. Uh, you might say that I let him have it. And I thought at the time that I was fully justified in what I said, in the manner in which I said it. But, last no- but that night, as I thought about our unfortunate encounter earlier in the day, guess what verse came to mind? Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but encourage him. And that word could also be translated, uh, admonish him, urge him, beseech him, even beg him, appeal to him. All those could be uh, suitable translations of the Greek verb for encourage there. You do all these things but to him as a father. But, it, but it's couched in edifying speech. And I got convicted. And the last thing I wanted to do was call this guy. But the Lord wouldn't let it go. And, and so I did. I called him on the phone and I asked him to forgive me. Young men are more likely to chew out older men, uh, not so much harshly rebuke older sisters in Christ, elderly women in the church. Um, and so I believe that's why Paul gives no qualifier to, with respect to older ladies. Um, that's not to say it's okay to do that. I think Paul realized that Timothy being young, his tendency would be more to rebuke older brothers than to treat older women in the church that way. Um, But notice that Paul does give a qualifier to Timothy when it comes to younger women. At the end of verse 2, he's to encourage younger women as sisters, how? In all purity. In that case, Timothy's tendency wouldn't be to lash out, it would be to lust after. So Paul says, encourage younger sisters or younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, Timothy, as you come alongside um, these young ladies in the church to encourage them in the Lord, make sure in your attempt to encourage them that you don't compromise your own moral standards. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And speaking of that, I have a confession to make to you. Almost every Sunday, I end up holding hands here at church with a woman who is not my wife. You know who she is? She's my elderly sister in Christ, Lydia, who sits right behind me. Most of you know who Lydia is. I told Lydia I was going to use her as an illustration. If if you're observing near the front of the church at the end of the service, almost any given Sunday when Lydia is here, she will come up to me after the service. She will take my hand into hers. And she will continue to hold my hand as she offers me words of encouragement after the sermon as I begin my week. And I've noticed that 
To date, nobody has a problem with that. Nobody gives us a second look. But if I were, every week after church, go to a young lady in the church and hold her hand in mine and keep it there for several moments as I encourage her, we would probably get some raised eyebrows, and rightly so. I think you see the point. Paul gives two qualifiers to Timothy regarding older men and younger women because of Timothy's specific age and gender group. If Paul had been writing to older believers, he might have said, don't belittle or look down on the younger men and women in the church. And Paul does say things like that in other letters, but this is written to Timothy. And the point is this, that if we are to encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to encourage people across all age gender groups, all age identity groups. But here's the thing. We need to do that with a nuanced application. We need to use discernment and wisdom in how we go about it, taking into consideration the person's age, taking into consideration whether he is a male or female, to discern how best before the Lord to encourage them in the Lord. That's the point. That's what we must do if we're to love one another like family. Now, the second main point, which will take up the bulk of our time, is in verses 3 to 16, and that is, look after those who have no family. Churches flourish when its members treat one another like family. So we're to love one another like family, verses 1 and 2, but we're also to look after those who have no family, uh, meaning they have no biological family. In verses 3 to 16 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about caring for widows, those needing support in verses 3 to 8, and those offering service in verses 9 to 16. And of course, there will be a lot of overlap between those two groups. So let's look first at the widows needing support. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. What does Paul mean? Are there, are there uh, ladies in the church who were pretending their husbands died, but they really didn't? Now, honor those who are truly widows. No, their husbands have to be really dead for them to qualify. No, Paul's not saying that. Uh, he doesn't mean merely either to show them respect. He means support them financially, provide for them. The church is to do this for, church, for widows who are truly widows. Uh, that is, Widows that are truly needing support, they are destitute. They don't have family to care for them. Um, These are widows who have no family to support them. Look at verse 4. Paul talks about this here. Uh, Verse 3 says, honor widows who are truly widows. Then he says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, if you've been with us, you know that in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, train yourself for what? For godliness. Very good. Train yourself for godliness. And now here he's saying, now show that godliness first at home. That's where charity begins, right? Paul gives two reasons why children and grandchildren should provide for their aging parents and grandparents who are in need. 
First reason is it's payback. (laughs) It's payback in a sense. Paul says in verse 4, learn to show godliness first to their own household and to make some return to their parents. It's an opportunity to repay parents and, and grandparents for all the good that they've shown us. I did a little research this past week and found that economists estimate that the market value of a mom's work at home is $125,000 to $185,000 a year. And if she got bonuses like everybody else, it could push her over $200,000. And that's assuming you could even begin to put a number on the kind of love and care that a mom provides. What about um, grandparents? This week, my wife is leaving me, um, just temporarily, (laughs) to head down to Virginia, where our daughter will, God willing, about a week from now, be giving birth to our fourth grandchild. And she's going to be caring for the other three children as uh, our daughter Megan recovers from giving birth. Um, over the last few weeks, I've found little things that Ruthie's picked up at the store here and there that she's gone to take down with her. So you think of time, the gift of um, gifts. Um, you think of the gift of uh, physical support, um, the relational support, the prayer support. Grandparents provide all sorts of support to their grandchildren. And that's in addition to all that they invested in the kids' parents, right? From a human standpoint, the grandparents are the one that made the parents, and they are the one that raised them. And if they were good grandparents, good parents, then they raised him into the people, the wonderful people that they are now by God's grace. You know, I thought this past week that there's a popular expression in our culture called pay it forward. How many of you have heard of that expression, pay it forward? Yeah, most of you. And that's when a recipient of an act of kindness does something kind for somebody else. They pay it forward instead of simply accepting or repaying the kindness that was shown to them um, originally. And paying it forward is a good thing to do. I think that's, that's wonderful. But paying back, giving some small return to parents and grandparents, especially when they're in need, is a good thing to do. God says that's what he wants us to do. In fact, that's the second reason we should do it. It's it's not only payback in some small way, but it also pleases God. That's what Paul says. Make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Isn't that good? I thought of the scripture that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And that verse can either be hugely convicting or wonderfully comforting, wonderfully encouraging. Convicting if you're not doing what's right. It can be very encouraging if you are doing what's right. And it says that that caring for parents and grandparents who are in need is pleasing in the sight of God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? For we read in Psalm 68, 5, that God is 
God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. Isn't that a great verse? God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. God has said repeatedly throughout Scripture, be holy because I'm holy. So when it comes to this, God's compassion, God wants his people to follow suit. And that's why the care of orphans and widows were incorporated into the law of Moses. The Lord commanded in Exodus chapter 22, you must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will blaze against you. God is the defender of orphans. He is the champion of widows. And God wants his people to follow suit. Jesus warned against religious charlatans who exploited widows. Remember, the ones that devour widows' houses? While in the meantime, what are these guys doing in public? They're praying long prayers so they look pious in front of other people. But they're consuming widows' houses. They're exploiting them. Jesus warned against these kind of hucksters. And unlike them, Jesus showed great compassion toward widows. Because Jesus is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled God's law. Once as Jesus was approaching a certain village, the village of Nain, with his disciples and a great crowd was following them, coming out of the gate there was a funeral procession. And we read in Scripture, the young man who had died was a widow's only son. Then the text says, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. The one who had died was the only son of a widow. When the Lord saw her, his heart was overwhelmed with compassion. What did Jesus do? Well, because he's God in human flesh, he stopped the procession. He restored the widow's son to life and gave him back to his mother. How's that for caring for widows? Even as he hung on the cross, Jesus entrusted his widowed mother, Mary, to the disciple John. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The early church took its cue from the Old Testament, God's example in the Old Testament, the Son of God, Jesus, in the New Testament, as they too continue to show the same kind of care for widows. Acts 6, the church appointed seven gifted leaders to supervise the daily distribution of food to the widows in Jerusalem. James wrote in, in chapter 1, verse 27 of his epistle, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so it makes sense, given all that we've just covered, that in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy to make sure that the church, the church there in Ephesus, continues to care for widows who are truly widows. Those who are devoid of family and are dependent on God, looking to Him to provide. Look at verse 5, 1 Timothy 5, 5. Paul says, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Can you think of a widow in the New Testament who continued in supplications and prayers night and day? 
Anna, that's right, Anna in Luke 2. We're told that she never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. Look at verse 6. Paul says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And the point Paul's making here in contrast to the widow that's dedicated to God, if a woman is self-indulgent, she's living to please herself rather than to please the Lord, living to please self rather than to serve others. Paul said she's, she's still physically alive, but she's spiritually dead. Because a true disciple of Christ is not given to self-indulgence, but to self-denial. He who would be my disciple must take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So someone who lives for herself or himself is physically alive, but spiritually dead. And so Paul says in verse 7 to Timothy, command and teach these things as well. So that they, that is the believers there in Ephesus, may be without reproach. Now you'll recall that in the previous chapter, Paul said, command and teach these things. And in that context, he was talking about the beautiful doctrines about Jesus Christ that that Timothy was to teach, while also refuting the false teachers who had infiltrated the church with the bad doctrine, the bad teachings of demons. Now Paul says, command and teach these things as well. In other words, as as we put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display, as we refute false teaching, make sure that we incorporate into the teaching, into the life, into the relationship of this church, the proper care for widows who need support. And that way the believers will maintain a good reputation. Paul then reinforces the family's responsibility in verse 8. So this is the second time he's doing that. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see that? So so Paul just got finished saying that if someone is given a self uh, indulgence instead of self-denial, then they might be, you know, physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. And, and he says essentially the same thing here, that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What does Paul mean when he says that such a person is worse than an unbeliever? Well, he's saying because even unbelievers know by nature that the right thing to do is take care of your parents who are in need. To look after your grandparents when they are elderly and have no one else to take care of them. Why is this the case? Well, we know the answer from Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 is because the law of God is written on their hearts. Under Greek law, uh, even hundreds of years before Christ and, and still instituted coming into the time of Christ, children were legally bound to take care of their needy parents and grandparents, their elders. Anyone who refused to do it lost his civil rights. And in ancient Rome, they practiced many of these same kind of laws. They were enacted into their government. I was wondering about that in the U.S., and I found out that today in the U.S., 
30 out of our 50 states have filial responsibility laws that require to, children to take care of their parents' basic needs and medical care. Then I found out the only state that actually enforces that is the state of Pennsylvania, at least currently. But the fact that these laws are in the books, these filial responsibility laws, shows, and they're in other countries as well, shows that there's this sense, even universally, that it is proper and right for children to take care of their needy parents or grandparents, particularly those who are widowed. So the question is this, and I think that this is what Paul is saying in essence, if unbelievers know to do this, then how can we as believers who have received the grace of God in Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, how can we do any less? I mean, Jesus Christ gave up the the glories of heaven. Uh, I was reading this morning, or I was thinking this morning, that, that he who was rich for our sakes became what? Poor, that we through his poverty might become what? Rich. How can we who have received the the eternal benefits of God's grace toward us in Christ, who who died on the cross for our sins, who, who rose again that we might conquer death and be reconciled to God, how can we who have received such great gifts um, fail to hold on to money and possessions when they can be used to care for a loved one who is genuinely in need? And that's why I had them... John and Dee read that passage earlier. If someone shuts up his heart against a brother or sister who's genuinely lead, how does the love of God abide in him? And the implication is it can't. It can't. And that's Paul's point when it comes to widows needing support. Well, then in verses 9 to 16, he, he shifts his focus a little bit to widows offering service. Widows offering service. Let's read 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 16. New paragraph that's introduced by a new command. Paul says, Let a woman or let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house and and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. I want to try to cover this paragraph relatively quickly. John Stott says there's some evidence that there was an identifiable group of widows, what we might call an order of widows, that existed in the early church. And then he goes to cite or refer to as an example the death of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. If you're familiar with that story, you know that this, this lady that did so many wonderful deeds for her church and community died and, and they put her in the upper room of a house 
where she was. They cleaned her body, laid her up in that upper room, and they sent for Peter, who was in a nearby town. And Luke writes in Acts 9 that when Peter arrived, he was taken to the room upstairs where all the widows crowded around him, crying and showing him all the shirts and coats that Dorcas had made while she was alive. John Stott says, Luke refers to, quote, all the widows, unquote, in Joppa, as if they were a known and registered group. It is possible that Dorcas was one of them. She certainly was full of good works and acts of charity. And he goes on to say that though there are hints, such as Acts 9 and here in 1 Timothy 5 in the New Testament, that there was some sort of order of widows or registry of widows in the church. He says, quote, It is not until the end of the second century that Tertullian gives us unequivocal evidence that an order of widows existed. In his time and in the third century, the registered widows gave themselves to prayer, nursed the sick, cared for the orphans, visited Christians in prison, evangelized pagan women, and taught female converts in preparation for their baptism. So these widows were involved in, in a number of ministries. So although there may not have been an official order of widows in the days of Paul, there, there was some sort of registry, if you will, uh, widows who were registered to serve the church. I thought it might be kind of like criteria, criteria we use in our congregation to determine if someone is a shut-in. I think there were certain things that they looked at that officially qualified them in that status. And, and Paul lists essentially three requirements in this paragraph. She had to be at least 60 years old. She had to be wholly devoted to her husband when he was alive. Interesting, the, it literally says that she was a one-man woman. Remember, we were given the qualifications for an elder. He has to be a one-woman man. Well, she was a one-man woman. In fact, I read that it was even common on many uh, epitaphs on gravestones in ancient times during the early days of the church where you'd see a wife uh, named there and underneath it would say faithful to her husband or devoted to her husband. That was the mark of a godly woman. She had to be at least 60 years old. She had to be faithful to her husband. And she had to have a reputation for good deeds, which included bringing up children, uh, caring for them physically, spiritually, um, whether these children were her own children or maybe orphans that were ministered to. Bringing up children, showing hospitality. She had a welcoming environment into her home. Washing the feet of the saints which was a menial task reserved only for slaves, but was beautified by the example of Jesus in John 13, and helping those in trouble, encouraging them. And helping those in trouble would refer to any kind of people who were afflicted um, or maybe going through persecution or a severe trial. Paul says these are the qualifications for a woman to serve in that capacity. Just like we might look at character qualifications for, for elders or character qualifications for deacons, looking at uh, seeing how they were tested before they serve in that capacity. The same was true of, of widows who were officially served on behalf of the church, who officially served within the church as part of this registry. But Paul tells Timothy, refuse to enroll younger widows refused to enroll younger widows. And here's the reason Paul gives. I'm going to read the text again, this time in a paraphrase. 
because I think it helps to make it a little more sense. Refuse to rule younger widows because no sooner will they get on the list and they'll want to get off, obsessed with wanting to get a husband rather than serving Christ in this way. By breaking their word, they're liable to go from bad to worse, frittering away their days on empty talk, gossip, and trivialities. No, I'd rather the younger women, uh, younger widows go ahead and get married in the first place, have children, manage their homes, and not give critics any foothold for finding fault. Some of them have already left and gone after Satan. Now, there's a lot that, that's going on here, but I think it really helps to think about what's going on in the church at Ephesus. Do you remember in the previous chapter, Timothy is called to refute false teachers who uh, were there in the church, and uh, they were forbidding certain things that are blessed by God. And do you remember what one of them was? Marriage. They, they were telling Christian singles to stay single and serve Christ. And that was a mark of spirituality. And it would seem that this false teaching set up some of these young widows for a fall. That they Now that they didn't have a husband, their husband had died, and, and they were still young, they, they said, okay, well, I'll stay single and I'll serve Christ. They would make that pledge, but soon their passions would get the better of them. Did you know there's actually a term for this? It's called widow's fire. Have you heard of it? It describes, and I quote, the all-consuming desire for sex following bereavement. <laughs> that after that initial time is over, there's, it could be a physical passion, but for many women, it's a longing for intimacy. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say that they necessarily get married. It says they desire marriage. They want that oneness. They want that closeness. They want that intimacy. Yet false teachers say, no, 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 stay single, serve Christ. And so they make the pledge. But there are these passions raging within them. So what do they do? Well, either they stay single, but they commit sexual sin to fulfill those passions. Or in some cases, women ended up leaving the church to find a husband outside the church and therefore left the faith, taking on their religion or the lack of religion by her unbelieving husband. Paul says, so they, they've already strayed after Satan. Whatever the case, some of these young widows had gone away. And Paul is saying that the way to reverse this trend is to reaffirm God's truth. You see why teaching is so important to be as wide as Scripture is, but also to be as narrow as Scripture is on these things? Command and teach these things, or else you're going to mess up people's lives. So I counsel the younger women, the younger widows, to marry. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul affirmed singleness for some, but here in Ephesus, he was, he was addressing a specific problem that were plaguing young men and young women who had not been given by God the gift of celibacy. And Paul says, I'm counseling you to marry. In 1 Corinthians 7, he said, it's better to marry than to burn. It's better to do that than to, than to uh, make a pledge to serve Christ as a single person and then break that pledge and then end up committing sexual, or, uh, um, um, uh, sexual sin because you don't have any proper outlet for your passions, which... God created as a good thing to be fulfilled within the covenant of marriage. 
So Paul counsels them to get married. The way to reverse this trend is to reaffirm God's truth. So that's why Paul is taking such great pains in verses 3 to 16 regarding the care of widows to tease out the implications and even the explications of these biblical instructions. Well, Paul concludes this whole section by insisting for the third time in this passage, that only the destitute are to be supported by the church, not those who have family to look after them. Look at verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator wrote this, Charity misplaced is a great hindrance to true charity. There should be prudence in the choice of the objects of charity that it may not be thrown away upon those who are not properly so, that there may be the more for those who are the real objects of charity. See what he's saying? He's saying, don't be indiscriminate in how you direct your charity because if you give it to somebody that doesn't need it, you're taking it away from somebody who really does need it. John Calvin said it even more succinctly. Before the church has to carry the burden, let the children do their duty. Before the church bears the burden, let the children do their duty. And so Paul is simply wanting to make sure that widows get the care they need. And for that to happen, the church must help those who are truly destitute and Christian children and grandchildren must provide for their parents and grandparents when they have the means to do so. And I thought, you know, as I was thinking about that, how many of you have done just that? Um, many times during my years here and even in recent months, even recent weeks actually, I've had conversations with some of you whose parents were older, um, some of whom even died. And until the Lord took them home, you were faithful in honoring your father and your mother. You financially took care of them. You invested time. Um, you gave them physical comfort and care. Um, what a blessing that is. Your provision for your loved ones, Paul says here, is pleasing in the sight of God. It's pleasing in the sight of God, and you will never regret it. In closing, I want to pass on to you just two principles that John Stott articulated in his commentary on this passage. I thought they were so good, I wanted to share with you with them with you verbatim in closing. Principles that I thought were tremendously practical. Number one, the principle of discrimination. The principle of discrimination. John Stott says, there was to be no general handout to all widows irrespective of their circumstances. Widowhood was not in itself a qualification of support by the church. No, the church's provisions are to be limited to those in genuine need. If there are any alternative means of support, they should be used. In particular, the first call is on the widow's family. All of us must accept responsibility for our own relatives. The church's sense of social responsibility is not to encourage irresponsibility in others. That's the principle of discrimination. And the second principle is the principle of dignity. 
I really like this one, the principle of dignity. Stott writes, It is very interesting to note the two categories of widow Paul mentions, the one needing support and the other offering service. Although we have considered them separately, they must have overlapped. Indeed, ideally, health and strength permitting, the supported and the serving widows should be the same group of people. Widows, together with others in similar circumstances like single mothers, abused and divorced women, should have the opportunity both to receive according to their need and to give according to their ability. That is, both to be served and to serve. Christian relief should never demean its beneficiaries, but rather increase their sense of dignity. Isn't that good? Churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. Churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. So embrace God's truth and enjoy his people. That's what this is about. Churches flourish when their members treat one another like family. And I thought, isn't that how God treats us? Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, how can we begin to thank you for all the mercy and grace that you've poured out on us in Jesus Christ, our Lord? Lord, that rhetorical question isn't meant by you to be all that rhetorical because you tell us one of the ways we can show such gratitude is to give ourselves in service to others, to give our resource to others as they have need particularly those of our own household, so that the church not be burdened. And we as a church, Lord, have an obligation, indeed a privilege, to support those in our faith family who are truly destitute and thereby show the love of God in a tangible way. Lord, you know how best to apply today's message to each of our hearts in our biological household and in our spiritual household, the family of faith. We trust your spirit to do his work, even in these closing moments. For we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.